Hey Mohini, welcome to Network Capital. Here we try and demystify career principles and mental models of people doing interesting things and people helping others do interesting things. So tell us a bit about who you are and what do you do today? Thanks so much, Utkarsh, for inviting me. It's really a privilege to be here and to be talking to you. Um, I'm Mohini Gupta. I am currently a DCL student at the University of Oxford. Um, I'm at the Faculty of Oriental Studies and I'm studying language politics in South Asia. Um, apart from that, in my different lives, I'm also a translator, literary translator. I mostly work on poetry. Um, I've just completed translating Vikram Seth's poetry collection called Beastly Tales into Hindi. Um, so most of my work has been from English into Hindi and I've been working a lot in the children's literature space. Um, also, I guess during the pandemic, um, the most exciting thing I did for myself was start this platform called Mother Tongue Twisters, uh, which is a digital multilingual platform um, where I curate and collect Indian language poetry for young readers. So I feel very passionately towards um, getting young people to enjoy their mother tongues, whatever that complicated term means. Um, but uh, yeah, so I've been curating a lot of conversations around translation, literary translation, um, and Indian languages and poetry. So um, yeah, those are some of the things that I enjoy doing and um, excited to talk to you about some of them today. Why is mother tongue complicated? It's complicated because, you know, it's, how do you decide which one your mother tongue is? And there's, all, there's been this ongoing debate around that term. Um, is it the language that you learn first? Is it the language that you use most? Is it the language of your state, of your nation? Is it your mother's language? Could it be your father's language? There's all of these kinds of complications. Uh, and what that also does is creates complication in larger issues like, say, um, the census of India. You know, the census of India doesn't count some languages as mother tongues. There are all of these complications that come in while counting languages. What are the languages that get a status as a language, as a dialect, as a minority language? So there are all of these issues linked to the idea of mother tongue. But also personally, I think just in terms of your identity, it is something that you feel very close to. But some people may have conflicting relationships with their mother tongues as well. Um, you know, some people may not be living in the country of their mother tongue, but maybe somewhere outside. And again, who may have some, you know, these ideas of pride and shame that get associated with your mother tongue. Um, and those are also some ideas that I'm really interested in exploring is how, how we, what our relationship with our mother tongues is and how do we feel about them? Do we grow up feeling proud of them? Do we grow up feeling a little bit ashamed of our mother tongues going towards the sort of global language that we, that you and I are now speaking in, uh, which is English, uh, which has sort of become the lingua franca of the country in so many ways. But, you know, what does that do to your relationship with your mother tongues? And so there are all of these questions that I'm interested in exploring. Um, which is why it's a very complicated term. There's no one definition or meaning of mother tongue for anyone. Well, you're Indian, of course, but you've spent uh, some time learning Welsh and understanding the politics of language there. So tell us about uh, that experience and what it taught you about nationalism and language. Yeah, no, that's a great question because um, that is something that has um, led to the research that I'm doing today. It was very, it was very crucial um, in bringing me here. Because um, so I happened to be in Wales for a three month fellowship. This was the Charles Wallace India Trust Fellowship for writing and translation. That is where I finished my Vikram Seth translation work. 
Um, and I, it just happened to be based in Aberystwyth, which is a small coastal town in Midwest Wales. Um, and when I got there, I hadn't realized what a vibrant um, sort of space I was going to get into. And I didn't realize what a long history of um, language politics the country has. You know, you know it from the outside. I had spent some time in London before, but I'd never actually visited Wales. Uh, but when I when I got there and I lived there just for three months, I was living in a Welsh speaking, I was living in a Welsh speaking home. <clears throat> Sorry, I was living with a Welsh speaking family. And um, I realized that there are all of these ideas that I related to very strongly in terms of English, in terms of what English has done to the mother tongue Welsh. Uh, also, what I found really inspiring was how the Welsh government is dealing with teaching the new generation their language, because it is a language that has, it is a minority language, it's categorized as a minority language. Um, it is something that has been dying. There are not enough speakers to sort of keep it alive. And the government has now put in a lot of resources into schools and into policies and things like that to um, just use poetry and translation to encourage young people to engage with their language and also feel proud of their language because uh, for years and years um, the, you know this I, I learned this term today called linguicism which is uh, a term which means discrimination against something based on language or race um, and you know it's linked to ideas of linguistic imperialism and that's something that's so prevalent in Wales in terms of English and something that's right next door to them um, has been sort of ignoring the presence of their language for many years and people start relating to that people start feeling about their languages the way that they are told to feel about their languages um, and I think the government now is doing a lot to push back and sort of it is such an important part of their identity that they're sort of pushing back to say that you know this is our language and we're going to reclaim it as that um, so I was actually really inspired when I went there and I realized that some of the things that they were doing for the school kids um, in Welsh schools are things that we can replicate in India as well. Because while we have, say, Hindi has 500 million speakers, if you really look at the numbers around the world, but when you really look at it, are we encouraging young people to engage with their language in a way that um, encourages them to feel engaged with it throughout their lives? Or is it just convenient to learn in school and then forget after a point and easily sort of detach from it as you grow up? Um, so I think that I was really inspired by the great job that they were doing in Wales. And I thought I can come back and take some of the things that they were doing and actually bring it back to India, even if there's such a vast difference in terms of numbers of speakers, in terms of cultural context, but actually there were a lot of similarities um, in some of these language politics as well. So I, I found that really fascinating. Um, and I think because I was living there, I started learning the language as well, which actually gave me access to a lot more uh, people, to a lot more documents, to a lot more poetry that I was introduced to. Um, so I really did enjoy um, doing that. I think my my main mission of learning the language was to say the name of that really long railway station in Wales, which I achieved. So I was really happy. You got to tell us all about it. Uh, <laughs> can you spell it out or say it? Yeah, I mean, spelling it out will take uh, many minutes, but it's, uh, it's <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the second longest name of a town in all of in around the world. Um, it's called Llanvair Pusgwingir Skogeri Chwyn Drobus Shanti Silio Gogobok, and it's in the north of Wales. I had heard a newsreader speaking it before I left, and I was like, this is my mission, and I achieved it. So <laughs> I was very proud of myself. <laughs> well, you should be. Uh, we also hosted Dr. Tharoor, uh, you know, a few times, one of which was after his book, and there are some really, really long words, uh, but I don't think uh, any, anyone's as long as this one. <laughs> Yeah, this is, I think, 58 characters or something like that. 
Yeah, I think his one came close, but yeah, not perhaps <laughs> this month. Yeah. So tell me, Mohini, um, there's a lot going on. Like you're somebody who's uh, dabbled in this space. You're a coordinator, community builder, um, uh, an academic, but uh, there are multiple common threads running through your work. One of which is how do you how do you sort of bridge different cultures through languages? You mentioned something interesting about schools and what uh, the 500 million Indi Hindi speakers can perhaps do to encourage that. Um, is something happening on the ground when it comes to school? If you were to reimagine the school, how would you run it? And the reason I'm asking you is because Network Capital has launched summer schools uh, starting this year, and we have quite a few students already registered, and we're trying to really imagine the learning experience from ground up. So if you were to be teaching poetry in that school, how would you do it? And how would you essentially reimagine the learning experience? How exciting, congrats on the summer school. I didn't know about that. So that's really exciting. I look forward to seeing, um, you know, the exciting things that and happen And teaching, there. like, you know, we're gonna pull you <laughs> in for sure, that. Yeah, for, the Vic, for the Vikram set uh, uh, poem as well. We're gonna discuss that in a bit. Yes, we'll get to that. Um, okay, so many questions there, but I'll answer the uh, main one that you asked about how I would want to reimagine school and also what's happening on the ground, I think. Um, in terms of education and language, the latest thing that's happened is the national education policy that came out in 2020. Um, this is only the third policy that's uh, been approved since independence. So it's been revised after 34 years, which is a very long time. Um, but the the main thing to sort of, um, the main thing that I was really interested in seeing there was that mother tongue education has been given a lot of emphasis in this policy. And um, I think the, the complicated thing with that is how to implement that policy. And that's always been um, a very unwieldy issue for the Indian government to solve from, I think, from the time of independence and even before that. But um, just in terms of how do you, again, we come back to how do you define a mother tongue? Um, in a state, there are so many mother tongues. So a state can decide that this is the language that we're going to teach in in schools, but there are so many minority groups that whose languages will sort of get left out. And I think when you look at global research, um, you find that, students learn or young students at least learn best or absorb most when they're learning in their mother tongues. Otherwise it becomes a very culturally unfamiliar and a very distant experience for them. And what happens, especially in, um, this is called the ITM language groups in India, which are the indigenous tribal and minority minoritized groups. So what happens there is then it also starts leading to a lot of school dropouts, um, you know, lack of interest in schooling and sort of um, snowballs into again, lack of opportunities to education, to employment and all of those things. But um, coming back to the policy, I think that um, it has great intentions to sort of encourage mother tongue education, but um, it's, it's, very, it's very problematic in the way that it's actually rolled out. And I hope this new policy will change that somehow. And it's only just come out. So we have to see how it, um, you know, how it pans out. But if I was to imagine, um, or if I was to think about what I would really like um, to, you know, what I would really like to see in the classrooms for young students. I think when I think about my own experience, uh, I've studied in Delhi, so I have, you know, my experience is limited to a very urban environment. But if I was to think about my own um, education and how we were taught, say, Hindi, which is which happens to be my mother tongue in schools, I think that all of the poetry or all of the texts that we read were very um, they weren't as relatable as I would have liked them to be. And um, 
they were always, you know, they were either very patriotic or very moralistic. And what happens with that is you start associating the language with some of these things. And then, you, you know, it's not cool anymore. It's not fun anymore to be uh, engaging with that language. And then it becomes very easy to detach yourself from it. On the other hand, in English, we had poems, you know, by Williams Wordsworth, who was talking to us about daffodils. And these were our favorite poems as we grew up. Every recitation competition, elocution competition, one would read out poems by these British authors. And I, when I started thinking about it, I was like, I'm never going to see a daffodil in my life. So, you know, the poems that I've grown up loving and enjoying are things that have been so culturally distant from my own experiences as um, an Indian student growing up in New Delhi. Um, so why not actually create, and that's what my aim with Mother Tongue Twisters was to actually create contemporary poems with sort of experiences taken from um, people who've grown up in this environment. And I'm not saying that it's possible to put together a homogenous um, Indian experience in any kind of poetry because the Indian experience isn't homogenous. It changes with every you know, kilometer in the country. But uh, as long as we, we can sort of draw on our own experiences, I think there will be people who will connect to them more. And I think even the way that you use language, like if, you know, when we do talk about the Vikram said translation that I've done, I've translated it into Hindi and it is for young readers. And what I've tried to do is keep the language very simple and very colloquial, because I feel like, so if he's talking about being bored, I will in Hindi saying bore ho jana, as opposed to saying oop jana, which is not something that you know, a child would find themselves saying very naturally. So I do want that language to be very um, relatable and very contemporary, as opposed to being something that becomes more and more distant from young students who then stop relating to the language and then stop taking an interest in learning the language at all. Um, so yeah, I think if I were to imagine that, I would love for students to just have more contemporary material to engage with, but also I would love for them to also engage with materials from other languages. Um, and, you know, it doesn't mean you have to learn every language in the country, it's not possible, but even if it means boosting the translation industry and actually having direct translations happening between different Indian languages, I would love to read, um, say, if I read Hindi, I would love to read literature from, you know, other languages like Tamil, Marathi, uh, Bangla, in Hindi as well, and I think there's so much scope for um, you know, feeding into um, each other in terms of these Indian languages. And I think that if we're introduced, that, introduced to that from a very young age, it would be such a rich um, sort of space to um, grow up in, such a rich learning environment for kids to grow up in. Um, so I yeah. do think that languages play an important role in poetry, especially because it appeals to young minds very much. It has a musicality, it has this rhyme, wordplay, things that appeal to young minds a lot. And I think that we could really use that to... Uh, almost um, brainwash them into feeling like it is something that they want to be engaged with for a long time. Yeah, I love the name MTT and I've catched a, a few episodes uh, loving it so far. Uh, does Do people ask you about linguistic purity? What does purity mean to you? And then also tell us what MTT is. Yeah, so MTT, like I said, is mother tongue sisters. Um, the idea was to uh, sort of, I just combined the word mother tongue and tongue twisters and just sort of created a little pun on it. Um, but um, the idea was- again, And that is like, you know, a, a lot of marketing and branding people will uh, find themselves redundant because, you know, a poet is coming up with such brilliant names. They're, they're, they're not required anymore. Yeah, in fact, the day that I put it out, I wasn't prepared at all. It was just the first day of lockdown. And I was like, I don't know what to do with myself because I was so used to doing so many things. 
um, that I just, without consulting anyone, without anything, it was just an idea in my head and I just put it out there. Uh, so it, it does take Next a lot. time you come join Network Capital, we've launched a fellowship. I don't know what I want to do with my life. It was basically <laughs> looking at like that. really was, interesting. <laughs> but yes, oh, sorry, please. Yeah, uh, Nothing close to MTT. Yeah, I was just thinking about what you asked about linguistic purity. And I think that's, again, a very, very long conversation and a very large debate. Uh, okay, so let me just complete about MTT first, and then I'll come back to that. But MTT, um, so Mother Tongue Christos became, it was a platform, and I started putting out poems in different languages um, for young readers. And yeah, by young readers, it could range from the age of four to the age of 16 or 17. Um, so there were different sort of target groups for different poems that I would put out. And I realized that a lot of adults started enjoying this platform as well, because I think, um, say, if it was a Marathi poem, a lot of adults said, oh, I remember this poem, but my grandmother used to say it to me. And I really did encourage poets to uh, send me poems that they remembered, like from memory that may not have been documented anywhere. And I found that a lot of people started uh, resonating with them. So that was really fascinating to me. And I found that um, people were really enjoying that, whether they knew the language or not, they were enjoying listening to some of these rhymes in different languages. And I think that also does a lot in terms of just opening up your mind to the sounds of different languages. And why I feel that's important is because sometimes we hold these sort of biases and stereotypes against um, some languages, some dialects. For example, I had these really, really sweet sounding lullabies in Bhojpuri. And that's a language that most people, you know, associate with different things, but I really wanted to bring out uh, a lot of the sort of melodiousness and the sweetness of some of these languages through these poems and lullabies and songs and folk songs and things like that. And I think that that really did um, encourage people to just engage with languages that they may not have um, in a literary sense otherwise. Um, so that that was going on. And I think in in parallel, I started these conversations with literary translators, because being a translator myself, I realized that there aren't enough platforms that um, are focusing on translators. So I really decided that I'm going to make translators the celebrities in my sessions. So I was all, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't invite the author, I would just invite the translator and talk to them about the process of translation, what they enjoy about translation, what are the big challenges in translation. And um, this just started as a small group of 12 people in the first session, but I went on for 15 weeks straight, we call them translation Thursdays. Um, so from April to July, I was doing these sessions every week and we ended up covering languages, you know, I think like 15 or 17 languages uh, from India, from outside of India. So we had a session on minority European languages, which talked about Welsh, Basque, Catalan, Irish, uh, Turkish, uh, Kurdish, a lot of these languages. So it was, it became a very um, diverse kind of a series. And I think what I found most interesting while doing this was how many people were interested in hearing about translation. By the second or third session, I had hundreds of people signing up and I wasn't prepared for it, but I was amazed because I realized that people clearly do enjoy hearing about languages and translation. And it's such a, a missed opportunity until now, but you know, I think the virtual world allowed us to do that. And I think uh, we had some really interesting conversations, which also led to people getting into translation for the first time. I had people come back to me after the session and say that, oh, that was, you know, I've been thinking about going into literary translation, but never thought about it formally, but I was really inspired by the session. And they started their first translation project or somebody else connected with the translator who was on our session and started a mentorship program and they're working on a book together. So there were some really great things that came out of uh, the session that we were doing. And I think 
think, I mean, you know best about building a com community. And I think that that was what became most powerful about MTT was that it became a community of people who were all very passionate about languages and translation. And one would think it's a very niche uh, kind of a field, but actually there were so many people from different parts of the world who became a part of this very large community who continue to be engaged with it. And, you know, they would come for sessions, whether or not they know the language, whether or not they are interested in, say, folk literature or um, children's literature or, you know, so it could be our, you know, feminist literature. So we covered so many things, but we had people who were attending with a lot of enthusiasm. So I was really inspired by that um, on MTT. And I think that's something that I would like to continue and see it grow as we go along. Yeah, no, thanks so much for explaining it. It's a brilliant concept. And um, at, at the essence of it, it's also building a community, which is such a powerful thing, such needed in poetry and um, all kinds of languages that exist. So um, why do a PhD at all? Um, you know, your life was going well, you were working um, with a very interesting program. Um, you were getting a lot of recognition at the best of places. JLF, I think you're a co-organizer there, or you're a speaker there, your I book's coming out. Yeah. But still, Hopefully. like, you know, life is good. Why PhD? Great question. I asked myself this for five or six years while I was deciding to apply, but I finally went for it. I think uh, academia is something that I've always um, been engaged in, but I've sort of been in and out of for very long. Um, but uh, while I was while I was continuing to do my translation work, <clears throat> along with my work, and I was working with the Vedika Scholars Program for Women, and I was um, running the academic program there. So I was sort of engaged with academics from very, very different angles and different ways. But I realized that I do want to return to research because um, especially after I went to Wales, I think when I spent time there, I realized there was a lot that um, one could actually do. And I think why I've always gone away from academia is because I feel like I'd want to do something that's engaged with the real world. And this is a, you know, this may be a controversial thing to say, but I do think that it's important to ground your academic work in something that's connected with the real world. And until then, I hadn't really found an idea that brought me back to this sort of ground reality. But I think once I once I started spending time in schools, I started spending time in schools in Wales, in India, in Bhutan, I started doing a lot of sessions with young students. And that really inspired me to actually ethnographically study what's going on in terms of language pedagogy in India. Um, and, and actually sort of, you know, after hopefully after a PhD, actually work um, towards creating a more engaging pedagogy for young students and actually working with them, um, hopefully in a few years to actually transform what language pedagogy means in India and what um, the kind of curriculum that we expose young students to. Um, and I think teaching is something that I've always been very passionate about. So it is something that I'd want to do. And, you know, doing a PhD is um, a great step to get there. So, um, yeah, so I am really enjoying it. I mean, there's, I, I've been a literature student in the past. I've studied literature and culture studies. And now my PhD is sort of at the uh, cross-section of linguistics and anthropology. Um, so I'm learning a lot about social linguistics, about linguistics. I've never been trained in this before, but um, now that I'm doing courses in it and taking my research into that direction, I'm really enjoying myself. So, yeah, so I hope it will give me new tools to kind of um, do what I'm doing and take it forward. Yeah. You know, what I really like about your approach, and this is what we tell uh, everyone on Network Capital in the PhD track, is that uh, you got to be very sure and you got to 
look at the signs you you need to have a question that, that you know that grips you you can't be unsure and you know sort of uh, dedicate uh, a large number of years to that what other advice did you get or do you give now that you've uh, you know you've launched into the program and you're doing a bunch of things who should not do a phd and when should one start thinking about maybe there's a phd in here somewhere it's a great question. Like I said, I've struggled with it for many years. Since I graduated from my master's, I've been thinking about doing a PhD, but I think... And you went to a great um, school. You went to SOAS. Uh, it's perhaps the best in the program that you took. So again, as I said, life was good. You didn't need <laughs> to disturb that, but you did. And for good yes, reason. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not thinking of it as disturbing. I'm just thinking of it as the next exciting thing that I'm doing. So I'm, I'm really enjoying that. Um, yeah, so in terms of advice, I think the advice that I did get, I, I got very similar advice before I had decided to apply, just in terms of, are you sure you have to spend so much time with this topic? You really have to love the topic to get into it for, you know, four years, five years, six years, sometimes. When love is fickle, right? Love can be fickle. It's so fickle. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. And uh, I think that was what was kind of freaking me out before I even applied, because um, it is it is difficult and it is it is difficult to commit to something for so long and uh, you also hear of all of these things about a PhD life and uh, it's going to be really hard it's very isolated um, you know there's a lot of self motivation that you're required to keep sort of uh, keep up for so many years um, you're supposed to have a great relationship with your supervisor so it's also a big struggle to find the right person to advise you on your PhD so there are all of these things that of course you have to consider and I have to say that after everything I decided to apply when I finally was going um, the pandemic happened and the PhD is already such an isolated process that getting there and being completely contained in my room was a completely different experience so it it was um, it, it wasn't ideal but um, Honestly, I think that if um, there are different reasons for doing a PhD, I think one is if you want to be in the academic space, it is the only way to get there. It is the only way to sort of advance yourself um, to get into teaching. The second reason is if, if you know, for, like for me, I think I'm doing the research for myself because I want to be able to um, call myself an expert on the topic. And of course, I think it takes years and years before you can actually call yourself an expert and feel like an expert. But I do want to give myself a chance to work on this topic in depth. And I want to sort of explore all the different kinds of literatures that exist in this space because I can continue doing my work. But I think it is good to sort of take a little step back and also keep improving on yourself, keep expanding your knowledge because it becomes very easy to become complacent. So for me, I am doing it to um, just kind of build on that knowledge for my own self, build my own research skills, um, academic skills. And it is a hard life. Academic life is a hard life. You really do have to jump into it um, and sort of just commit to it and be completely inside it. But at the same time, I know that I am someone who always will do many things at once. So I am also continuing to do my, um, you know, continue to run my platform, Mother Tongue Twisters. I'm doing two or three different projects. I'm working with the Arts Council of England to um, develop um, these modules for young British students on exploring race through translation. So we're using translation to talk about race um, in classrooms in Britain. So I am sort of doing different projects alongside as well. And um, yeah, I think the only advice I'd give is that 
um, it is true that you must um, come to something that excites you. And I think love is a fickle thing and so so is excitement. But I think that if there's something that's- So deemed, is passion, so is life, so is everything. You know, on that vocabulary we often there's say- no don't, Yeah. <laughs> no, there's no end to that. But I think that if there is something that sparks something in you, something that's been at the back of your mind for many years, for me, it took about 10 years of this question sort of niggling at me somewhere. Um, for me to say, okay, this is something that I really do want to um, devote myself to. Um, but, you know, you don't have to wait that long. Or you can. I think the other thing is there's no right time to do a PhD. I think there's, you know, yeah. you can do it at 23, you can do it at 45, you can do it at 55. It, there really isn't um, no best time. It really is for you and you know your journey best. Um, so there's no hurry to do it. There's no point doing it when you're not ready. Um, but there's also no harm waiting if you're not. So you know, a completely very, very personal decision, but but it must be a deliberate decision. I think um, it it would be silly to sort of get into it without thinking about it a little bit or giving yeah. it some deliberate thinking. But um, yeah, it's a tough process, but I think, it, I hope that it will be rewarding at the end. <laughs> it's only been six months for me. So. Yeah. yeah, six uh, COVID months. So it's been challenging for sure. Um, you know why uh, your uh, career principles or the way you've approached it is very interesting is because you've managed to build a portfolio of careers, some in business, some in translation, some in writing, some in academia. And then there's also depth, like you've decided, okay, one thing I really love and I want to commit a few years of my life to getting that PhD uh, out of the way or done. Um, if you look at the possibilities that come by trying different things and learning from uh, from these experiences, um, are there uh, are there some things that you regret if you look at your early twenties or late twenties that oh why did I do that that doesn't seem to add up to my current you know where I am or do you look at it largely as an ed educational thing how should say people um, think about missed shots or missed opportunities or wrong opportunities so to speak. I think there's no end to thinking about what one could have done and, you know, regrets. And in my personal life, or at least, I mean, I am someone who, um, you know, goes down that track very often. Um, but if I think about it, really, I, um, you know, it sounds cliche, but really, there isn't anything I regret. And I'll tell you why, because um, I remember I had this moment after my master's program when I came back to India. So I was at SOAS, I was doing cultural studies and I came back to India and I was trying to look for different kinds of work. I was trying to see what excites me and, you know, the different things that I could explore. Um, and I had this, one of my worst interviews of my life where um, the person who was interviewing me and I'm not going to name them. Um, they looked at my CV and I had um, studied literature. I had worked in the music space. I've taught the piano. Um, I had worked on translation. So he looked at my CV and said, you know, this CV doesn't make any sense to me because I don't see any narrative here. So, you know, what is it that you really want to do? And he was very condescending about it. And because I was quite young and I had never really worked before, I, I got very affected by that. And I came back thinking, wow, what a, what a waste my life has been because I thought that I was doing so many interesting things. But yeah, he's right. There is nothing that ties my uh, ties these things together. And I've clearly like just wasted my time. But I think the more that I've sort of, the, the more that I grew up and the more I started working in different fields, I realized that, okay, I am someone who likes doing different things. And if, you know, if it is something that, 
I can, um, you know, it, it also actually motivates me more to do many more things as opposed to doing one thing. Um, so I actually work better when I have, say, five things to do as opposed to when I have one. Um, and I think it's a matter of just embracing who you are. And I think that um, if there, there's no point regretting anything, and I have really made an effort to um, really get into the depth of whichever thing I'm doing. So I've tried to not let things um, remain at a superficial level. I've tried to go deeper into my work in translation or even my work with music, which actually comes in really handy when I'm working with poetry as well. So somewhere things are connecting for me. And I think that you only see that a few years later. Um, and I think the thing that I've always done in terms of thinking about my career trajectory is never planned it. Um, and I don't know if that's a good piece of advice to give or not, but I've just never planned it. And I've always, um, whatever I've gone on to doing, it's always been a very, very impulsive decision. And whenever it's felt right, I've just gone for it. Um, even if, you know, I was told that it's a stupid thing to do, whether it was studying literature or studying humanities in school. Um, I remember I had, I had done really well in my 10th boards and everyone said, oh, you're wasting your brain, just do science. Who does humanities um, after getting such good marks? And these are all these little, little things. Sorry, I think you're on mute. <laughs> That's a really popular advice in India, right? Oh, the science <laughs> parlo. You know, as if like, you know, uh -huh. it's the right, uh, right of passage to something. It's the you only know, way uh, to use your brain is to do science. Uh, and... The one reason why network capital exists and continue to grow is because uh, our land is a land of very bad career advice. Somebody mm -hmm. once said that we have uh, 1.3 billion people, 1.3 billion career coaches and 1.3 billion <laughs> cricket coaches, all equally distributed. So, so yeah, we look, yeah. Yeah, and you know, um, family members also become a huge part of all of your career decisions and extended family members. My family's, my immediate family's always been very supportive. But um, even when I graduated from school, I had done really well in math. I got 100 on 100 in my 12th boards, which was like the best <laughs> of my life. And um, I had gotten into uh, math honors as well at Stevens. And everyone said, oh my God, you must go to Stevens. You know, there are these decisions that are sort of uh, imposed on you. And it becomes very difficult to then think about what you really want or what you really, um, yeah, what you really truly want to do. Um, but I remember how difficult it was and it becomes very difficult at these different stages to take these um, decisions or to go with what your heart is telling you. And that might again sound very cliche, but really um, I couldn't see myself doing, you know, maths in depth for three full years. Um, so I went with English literature and it was the most eye-opening, the most wholesome experience of my life to study English literature at the undergraduate level. Um, and again, the YIF was a decision like that. You know, you were in yeah. the first batch. and Transformational that's for both of us, yeah. Exactly. And that was a time when no... And I mean, this for the listeners, I mean, yes, uh, both Moeni and I know each other for a while. Our parents know each other as well. So it's obviously, uh, it's not two strangers talking. But yeah, it's serendipity takes very interesting turns. Exactly. And it's been 10 years to that. But there was a time when nobody had heard, heard of the Young India Fellowship. And again, though, there were questions about that such a, you know, what a waste of a year or is it a gap year and all of these things. But I think that if you know what you're doing and if you, it is also what you make of what you do, um, you know, and it doesn't matter. Ultimately, things like brand or things like um, conventional success you know conventional mantras of success and these things ultimately don't matter I think it is what you make of where you are and what you do um I remember when I was in Wales and I was in Aberystwyth for three months it is a very very small town and I had been given advice from so many people who'd spend time there that it's a very lonely place you're not going to have any fun just get out of there whenever you can and there were all of these kinds of things but when I got there it was one of the most wonderful experiences of my life and I think 
um you know if you do immersive I, we hear you're one of the more popular people there like many houses <laughs> have opened their doors to you is that true i don't know where you heard that but <laughs> it was it was a great experience for me and i think i think my learning the language was a played a huge role because people really do appreciate when you um engage with the culture and the language and i think it means a lot to people when you do that and um you know so yeah i think forming great relationships along the way working with the right people um going sometimes going with your intuition about what seems right um you know some people work better when they plan 5 years 10 years ahead some people i mean i definitely don't work better like that but i, th- I think it's worked out okay for me until now um so yeah so no no regrets to answer your question but that's how i think about it no it's i mean life changes so fast you know uh, we, uh, we're in the midst of the fourth industrial revolution so much is changing in technology policy nationalism language um new kinds of media being developed so it it's uh, very difficult to accurately predict uh, where will life be in 5 years the truth is nobody knows and the only thing you can do is to follow your curiosity the way you you've shown us that it's possible i think what i also love telling people when i talk about translation you know a lot of people say why translation is such a you know what is so interesting about translation but i do uh, like to talk about machine learning and artificial intelligence and i say that you know while so many developments have happened in that world translation is something that remains so human because um you know and i i love to show examples from google translate because when you translate something into a language and you translate it back it always kind of gets messed up dal mein kuch kala hai there's something black in my lentil soup <laughs> not why exactly. yeah yeah so i think that that sense of um being in two languages sense of living two languages living two cultures um that's something that is so human and i think that that will remain that for a very long time it will be very difficult to replicate um you know the kind of cultural knowledge that we bring um and language is such an important part of that and i think that's also why in the you know techno- technology space uh, localization is such a crucial um role right now um you know most websites most um search engines more social media everything is trying to localize because it is so important to people um to have that in their own languages and the only way to do it is when you've lived that experience and when you're able to sort of it's not just translation it's not it's not a simple um method of translation it is transcreation it is bringing an entire culture to a you know transporting an entire culture to another culture and i think that process uh, does require a lot of lot of work a lot of um just there's no substitute for experience there but i do think that that's something that is important to keep in mind when we think about translation especially as a career option i think that it's something yeah. that is relevant you know i like to it. think of it on three prongs it's a form of protest it's a form of insight and it's a form of innovation i mean it's really important this entire space and uh, we need uh, you know more millennials like you um and uh, to to do such work it's really important because you can lose an entire culture if you don't uh, invest the right amount of time in that uh, on the notion of translation and as we about to conclude um i think that we'll have many of these so let's call it part 1 of the long series of the mohini show on network capital but uh, i can't let you go without uh, uh, vikram said and uh, the frog and the nightingale do you mind <laughs> walking us through it and tell us about how this book came and we'll conclude this episode there sure do you want me to read a little bit as well yes 
okay i could read maybe a stanza of it but um, yeah. just to talk about yeah. what yeah just a little bit to give you a flavor of it but um the, the frog and the nightingale is a poem by vikram said from his collection beastly tales and it is the first ever poem i translated it's the reason i got into translation is because one day after my 10th boards um this was a poem that was in our english language curriculum in the 10th and after my boards i decided that oh it's summer i want to do something i love this poem let me translate it into hindi i have no idea where this instinct came from but it did and i decided to recreate because i love the poem so much it has this great sense of rhyme rhythm musicality puns wordplay humor um and i thought that let me try and create it recreate it in a different language and of course the only other language i knew was hindi and i found myself writing rewriting the poem i want to say rewriting instead of translating but i found myself rewriting the poem in hindi and the rhyme and the musicality came very naturally to me in hindi which i found very surprising because i had never expressed myself in hindi before and i mean in terms of writing and poetry i never expressed myself in hindi and i found that it was a very liberating process and sometimes when you talk to translators you find that translating in rhyme can actually be very restrictive because you know every line has to rhyme with the next line but i actually found that um very very freeing and very liberating and um i enjoyed the process so much that i translated the entire poem i sent it to vikram seth as well who um very graciously read the poem gave me feedback and replied with a very sweet note which i've saved for posterity <laughs> it's right next to me you should <laughs> <laughs> but um i think that gave me so much motivation because i said oh this is something that gets me appreciation from vikram said so it must be a great thing to do um but that was just how he it does started. not reply to many emails i think people know that so you must really have done a great job and i know that he's very picky about translation he has a very very sharp sense of language and music both so i was uh, i was very very um, i felt very encouraged by that and i think that led me to this sort of path of um thinking about translation and also my academic interest in translation and languages and it just sort of grew from there um and you know because i enjoy rhyme and poetry so much i sort of naturally fell into the children's literature space so i have worked with tulika books quite a bit and i've worked with translating some of their books into hindi i've got some oh wow <laughs> but um, can you say can you bring it on closer to the camera we can capture that it's amazing this is called kanna padmanam so i would do a lot of their hindi translations for them um but yeah so that's that's really uh, how my sort of journey with translation started so what i'll do before we wrap up is just read a little bit to give you a sense of the translation and then we can definitely continue the conversation yeah many of our readers are uh, uh, are english speakers and many are not and vice same for hindi so you can you should you should do both if if you're okay with Great. that yeah i'll just read a bit of both um okay so this is called the frog and the nightingale many of you may have heard the poem before um i'll read the first stanza once upon a time a frog croaked away in bingalwog every night from dusk to dawn he croaked on and on and on other creatures loathed his voice but alas they had no choice and the cross cacophony bled out from the sumak tree at whose foot the frog each night minstreled on till morning light neither stones nor prayers nor sticks insults or complaints or bricks still the frog's determination to display his heart's elation but one night a nightingale in the moonlight cold and pale perched upon the sumak tree casting forth her melody dumbstruck sat the gaping frog and the whole admiring bog stared towards the sumak rapt and when she had ended clapped 
Ducks had swum and herons waded to her as she serenaded, and a solitary loon wept beneath the summer moon. Toads and teals and tiddlers captured by her voice, cheered on, enraptured. Bravo, too divine, encore! So the nightingale once more, quite unused to such applause, sang till dawn without a pause. I'll move on to my Hindi translation, which is called Mendhak or We all, I mean, anyone who went to high school in India knows this poem, right? Because this was in, uh, in school. Exactly. That's what I had encountered it. Um, so Mendhak or Bulbul. Dal dal desh mein mendhak ek, karta rehta tar tar tek. Suraj ke dhalkar ugne tak tar tar chalti uski bak bak. Baki sab sunna na chahte, lekin ve bhi kya kar paate. Mano toot padi ho gaaz, sunni pade uski awaz. Bargat tale betha wo mendhak gata rehta tek subha tak. Maare patthar, maare dandi, eat tomatoes saath mein ande. Uske josh ko rok na paaye, must mendhak wo gata jaye. Aai phir ek chandni raat. लाई एक बुलबुल को साथ बैठ उसी बरगद के ऊपर सुर मिलाए उसने तत्पर मेंढक रह गया भौचक्का बाकी जानवर हक्का बक्का जिस बरगद से गूंजती गालियां बजी वहीं अब सबकी तालियां बतख बगुला दूर से आए उसके गीतों में समाए चांद की चकोरी कोई गाना सुनकर दर्द से रोई दादुर कलहंस बछड़े सब देने लगे बढ़ावा तब वाह वाह बहुत खूब ये बात बुलबुल ने फिर की शुरुआत नाथी वाही की आदत गाती रही वह सुबह तक ब्यूटिफुलेंड uh you know people older than that it's beautifully done mohini congratulations and uh, so it was lovely listening. talking uh on the first episode of this but yeah come back for the summer school and teach kids what you just said it's very powerful right translation and poetry as a means of inspiring and education and what's exciting about our summer school is that there are people of course many are like south asians but many are not so it'll also be a great cross pollination of uh, insight language No, I would love to do that. In fact, it was such a hit in Wales as well because I think just the sound of the language and the sound of poetry and rhyme can also make an impact. Um, so I would love yeah. to do that. And thank you so much. This was I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for um, all of your insightful questions that made me think a lot about my own sort of career trajectory, career principles, as you call them. Um, but I really and all our listeners don't. You didn't know any question in advance. We don't send questions in advance to the people we invite. So it's basically you have to dance on the spot. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> I was nervous so it about. It was amazing. Ah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it was it was really really good fun, and I want to congratulate you one more thing. Like some of the writings that you've done in in the caravan and other pieces there, uh, other magazines there, you should do more of that. Uh, many of our community members really enjoyed it, so I thought I'll pass on the message. Thank you so much. Yeah, I just really wanted to bring um, you know some of these Hindi writers who are not as well known as the English reading in the English reading world. um so i'm trying to profile um some writers and just bring this world um into english as well so i hope i hope many more people will engage with that they thank will. you so i'm proud i'm proud thank you bye moini cheers